welcome, welcome, and welcome. That's to comic book fans of all ages, all backgrounds, and all desires. This is the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. And if you hear that little snoring in the background, that would be my Spinner Rack buddy, Bruno, the mighty French Bulldog, always happy to lend a bit of snoring contentment, knowing that we've read through all the books, I've picked my five, and while I'm recording, he can snuggle at my feet and listen to the stories he's loved with me. We're at episode number 20 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. A little bit of a milestone, 20 episodes, over 100 comic books chosen from among the vast thousands printed by DC Comics every year, and we're still going strong. Now, I always think of summer as being uh, three months, June, July, and August, and this last batch came out on July 31st, the last day in July, which means we're moving into that final stretch of the summer. And just like all great things, we're not going to let it slip away just yet. Let's hold on to July 31st by taking a look at the top five books that came out that day from DC Comics. I'm going to go ahead and kick things off with my first choice, Green Lantern Annual Number 1. Now this one was titled The Wireless Ones, written by Grant Morrison, featuring layouts by Giuseppe Comincoli. Ooh, I hope I said that right. Trevor Scott with the finishes, Steve Olaf as the colorist, and Tom Orzachowski on the letters, not to mention Gear March with Alex Sinclair with a really fun cover with Hal trapped inside of a cell phone trying to get out and a somewhat menacing hand holding that cellular device. In the wireless ones, we see Hal visiting with his family. Actually, we see Hal waking up in a bathtub only to find that the rest of his family, except for the kids, is passed out. Now, maybe it was a rager, maybe it was a binger, Maybe everybody just didn't realize how much fun they were having. But there's more to this story, because the family's trapped inside an invisible force field, watching the outside world passing by. And there's a giant, pink, swirling, bubble-like thing coming towards them. Oh, and for some reason, you can only see that when you open one door. And when you do open that door, the giant, pink, sparkly thing is actually on an entirely different To which I really enjoy Hal saying, This might be my fault, because stuff like this generally is. This was a great opportunity to check in, as Grant Morrison so often does, with all these dangling and remaining or lingering stretches of history that exists within DC Comics. Not only do we get to see Hal's extended family, but we also get to meet characters like Hal Jr., who is Airwave, a hero with a bit of linkage to the DC Comics history as well. All of these elements are put together when the kids, basically anyone who's not too old, and Hal, who will never grow up, find someone named Zip, and Zip is from Quiz a universe where he is a fugitive and he's being hunted by the Guardian's police force from his own universe and they transmit through radio wave and other communication signals digital and all the myriads that go with frequency communication they're here to get zip and Hal and his family, thinking that they're helping out the good guy, prevent the pursuers from catching Zip. 
and when they cast him out using Airwave, Airwave then, unfortunately, through his powers, is able to send them off towards Voyage. He becomes a victim when they overtake his Airwave signal and use him to broadcast, which is when we realize that Zip isn't really the good guy, he was just running scared. And now that the cops are gone, or his pursuers, he's ready to run wild, or as he puts it, broadcast. It was really a fun issue. I love this idea of a twist, and also how so often who we think is the victim might in many ways be the villain. I also loved uh, just really great personification that was captured. The personalities and the dynamics that go with them in Hal's family, they actually become this great moment when Zip and his cohorts have passed into this world using Airwave and somewhat overtaking him. And in the process, beginning to overtake the outside world bit by bit by bit. Until Hal gets a great idea in which he challenges Zip and his cohorts to overtake his family, to try and control them. He dares them. And when that happens, Hal opens up and points out that really, people are just self-defeating other people. And in that, the family turns on each other. They all begin pointing out each other's weak points. And it's a really great moment when all of this attempt by Zip and his cohorts to run rampant and use these vessels to do their will is negated by the petty squabbles that Hal is able to drum up. And when he does, there's a great panel over on page 29 when he gives a thumbs up to the to the kids and uh, they look at him with this wow expression. The issue ends up in a really nice place with Hal able to work with Airwave to defeat Zip and then call on Radio Lantern of Quiz, who is a very fun-looking version of a Green Lantern, picks up Zip and closes the case. The art in this story was just phenomenal. Among my best moments, really, I love the gorgeous cover by Guillaume March with Alex Sinclair. Thought it was a really nice touch. Really enjoyed the way it sort of set up a lot of the themes within this issue. But overall, just a really gorgeous example of what happens when you've got Grant Morrison working with a different creative team than Liam Sharp, who we've seen him with recently. And the way that it's able to still expound and expand upon this weird and wildness that Grant Morrison is tapping into when it comes to a character like Green Lantern. Now, there were a few weaker moments, a few times when I felt that the description of the kids when they're drawn together as a group reacting to something or witnessing something that the detail between the three or four that might be shown in a scene felt kind of generic but then there were great moments like on page uh, 18 when we get a chance to see Hal Jr. calling to his wife and this great close-up of her face and the horror and fear of what's about to happen as this enemy grows stronger and stronger that really provides a great balance to that. I always enjoy an annual because it allows you to dig in a little bit deeper with characters and engage in a longer story because usually with an annual, you've got more pages to work with. Green Lantern in my book took full advantage of every page. Grant Morrison with his team did an amazing job of not only introducing elements of Hal Jordan's past, but making them feel fun and inventive and also providing a bit of comic relief. And it's one of the reasons why I was more than happy to give this book a solid 4.5 out of 5. I feel in many ways the, the strangest thing about the Green Lantern is that it feels so familiar and so 
forward. And one of the things that I love about it is that even when it stretches to the strangest points, I still feel like the Hal Jordan that I know, that I've come to love reading and who I've really sort of envied for his fearlessness and ability to basically do the impossible is measured in ways and it's really just sort of a, a really fun ride. One of the reasons why I'm happy to give this a solid 4.5 out of 5 and why I'm looking forward to sharing each new issue of Green Lantern with you. It's very rare when an issue doesn't make the spinner rack and when it does it's always a chance to tell you all about these great things which I've enjoyed and hope you will too. Now my score was a 4.5 out of 5 but your score is the one I'm really looking forward to hearing too. Stay tuned to the end for ways you can let us know all about that. But we're going to go ahead and move along to my second choice for this week of DC Comics News, Spinner Rack. And when it comes to that second choice, it's my pleasure to share with you The Batman Who Laughs number seven, the seventh and final issue in this not quite a maxi series. So I guess we can stick with the official term of mini series. Maybe anything under 10 is still considered a mini? We could argue about that later. The Batman Who Laughs has been a really interesting look into what happens when the Batman is faced with the challenge of becoming poisoned by the Batman Who Laughs. And the poison is designed to actually turn Batman into the Batman Who Laughs. It's a toxic syrup designed to warp and twist him into the version of the Batman who is infected. It's a great story that for six issues has been building to this amazing moment, a face-off between the Batman Who Laughs and the Batman. Great work here by writer Scott Snyder, artist Jacques, David Barron on the colors, Sal Cipriano on the letters, and Jacques handling the cover, as well as David Finch and Tomu Mori on the variant cover. I love the original cover with this sort of creepy Batman, half of his, uh, the front of his mask around the right eye has been damaged and the eye is sort of enraged in a way that reminds me of like a Two-Face. And he's got this sort of here's Johnny uh, expression and phrasing by saying here's Ruth, but the variant is also a lot of fun. It's got the Batman who laughs and Batman slugging it out in this collection of skulls and bones flailing around in the atmosphere as though they've been striking each other and in the process skulls and bones are getting thrown up into the air. Batman has been fighting to not get turned into the Batman who laughs and he's been tracking how fast and how far into his system the toxin from the Batman who laughs has progressed. There's only a small percentage of Batman still left. And the one thing that he's been holding on to is that the portal that he used, that first part, the Batman who laughs through, has also bringing, has also brought other versions of Bruce Wayne through. And one that was introduced last issue is a young, innocent boy. One who hasn't seen his parents killed. One who hasn't suffered. Still has all of the hope that Bruce Wayne originally started with. He believes it's going to be his ace in the hole, but it's going to take more than that to stop the Batman who laughs. And the pacing and storytelling really does this amazing job of making you think you've reached a final moment, the revelation, only to find out 
that there's one more twist. Whether it's Batman giving in to the rage and the debase or base level feelings and rationale or logic that Batman who laughs seems to operate under, the, the cold but also manic reasoning, the need for a serum that can help counter this all, the fact that there's also a problem with the second storyline, and that's Jim Gordon with his son James, and they're both being manipulated by the Grim Knight, who's working with the Batman who laughs, to poison Gotham's water and in doing so, twist everyone into another version that echoes the twisted nature of the Batman who laughs. Overall, the pacing is really well matched. I enjoyed the way the story continued to develop with each new surprise and each new revelation. And I love the way that even though it seemed so often that Batman was maybe down and out for the count, that he always fights through, just like the Batman we expect and as I've come to know and love. On the art side, it's really just a, a really amazing job of showing Batman in his present day moments, but also the distortion occurring within his mind due to the toxins taking over his system. When everything that he is seeing is shown through the viewpoint of his eyes. It's shaded in red. Everything feels completely distorted, almost as though there's a red lens or filter placed over his vision. Really great effect that works, uh, I think, to the best degrees. And it also really heightens the, the sort of terrifying nature of the Batman who laughs whenever we get a chance to see just what it is that Batman is seeing. On the story side, I also love the conflict between James Gordon and his serial killer persona and the way he's caught between helping and saving his dad or giving in to that nature by working with the Grim Knight. Because of who Jim and James are, I think it's not too hard to figure out what James will do in the end, but getting there through this story is a really great development and, and one that's rewarding, I think, for the reader. I also love the idea that this Batman points out that he's one of many within the multiverse, and that he actually believes that he's not the best Batman. He might actually be the worst, or the, the least impressive, or the weakest. And yet somehow, despite that, it's not enough to stop him. It's not enough to keep him from doing what he, he knows he has to do. And there's something impressive about that, almost as though the, the weakest Batman is still better than the strongest villain, or maybe the worst of the Batman who laughs from the dark multiverse. Really great concept being uh, expressed and explored here. It's matched wonderfully by great art and colors. As I mentioned before, the idea of the red tint and the lens but also the juxtaposition of this really great sort of glowing yellow light as sunset is occurring and the moments when we get a chance to see the city and the drones that are heading there with toxins that are supposed to help contaminate the water supply and citizens of the city. And it works so well when those two elements contrast against each other. When you've got the red skies and the sort of fading golden daylight it really creates this 
almost unearthly quality to the pages and to the scene. And I think it's part of what really makes this a great issue and one that I was really pleased to see and in its in its own universe. It was doing this in a world that felt so different from Batman and yet so familiar. And yet its ending encapsulated all the best elements of Batman while also staying true to the world in which it was being told. I thought this Batman who last number seven was a solid five out of five. I was more than happy to give this score based on the story, great art, and the fact that despite my best efforts, I couldn't come across one issue that I really felt was a weakness in the story or the art. And that's not always easy to do. So that was my score for my second choice, The Batman Who Laughs, number seven. But I can't wait to hear yours and to tell you all about how you can let us know when we get to the end. Since that was issue or choice number two for the DC Comics new spinner rack, we're going to take a quick break, pay for some bills, and then come right back. Thanks for your patience and sticking around. And we'll be back with choices three, four, and five right here on the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. Hi, everyone. I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News Podcast. Here every week to talk everything DC. Movies, TV, comics, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) No. Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, editor-in-chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DC News at checkout. That's DC N E W S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com/tickets and use the code DC News for 10% off. Back to you guys. And thanks for your patience and sticking with us. We're coming to you right after that ad break with my third, fourth, and fifth choices for this episode, episode number 20 of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. We're going to move into my third choice, Red Hood and the Outlaws, annual number three. Red Hood and the Outlaws is something that I didn't pick up until this year, so some of the backstory has been something I've had to go back and catch up with. When it comes to the story of We're Not in Kansas Anymore by writer Scott Lobdell, pictures by Adam Polina, colors by Steve Furchow, with prologue art and covers by Pete Woods, and a cover by Dexter Soy and Veronica Gandini. ALW's Troy Pateri, is on the letters and we're not in kansas opens up with bizarro and artemis grace bizarro is a very interesting looking version of himself in this story 
And it's intriguing because apparently he's gone through quite a few variations. Now, before we actually get to see where they are, we understand why it is that they're in such a strange place. When the issue opens with Red Hood, meeting with a boy named Vessel, someone who can communicate with the dead, but is unable to make any contact with Artemis Grace or Bizarro. And then the story jumps to six months earlier, on another Earth, as it describes in the description panel, far from our own. Bizarro, Artemis Grace, are on a world with a hall of justice similar to the one from ours. But instead of justice, the words punishment have been overlaid on top, and these giant golden spikes, almost like mineral or rock jutting out of it, represent, at least visually, that the Hall of Justice was destroyed. Who and what did it? Well, it turns out that there was a nefarious plot. A trip inside this Hall of Justice reveals at least one person hiding out and others nearby. And the revelation that within the Hall of Justice is the body of Superman crushed, or at least his head crushed, by the planet-sized daily planet globe that used to sit atop the famous newspaper in Metropolis. The man they find, a security guard who still looks after the Hall of Justice, it's clear that he doesn't know what happened, much like anyone else. It could have been Lex Luthor or Brainiac, could have been anyone, but someone flipped a switch and every metahuman on Earth lost their powers, while nearly every ordinary human gained a superpower. Because of that, the humans quickly turned on their former superpowered protectors, and when they did, they changed the world forever. Bizarro and Artemis struggle with this, but it's a short-lived struggle when they realize that the guard they've been talking to is actually the one who controls the golden spikes, and we see images of him after he first attacks Bizarro, describing how he killed Cyborg and many of the other heroes in cohorts or in collaboration with the humans who had also gained powers and been so drastically changed. It's a short-lived struggle because Bizarro does not hold back the way Superman does and with one punch sends a security guard soaring through space and into the sun. It's actually a really great single page on page 19, a series of panels showing this burning object soaring from the planet Earth into space, and as the panel zooms in, you get a chance to see the, the sort of warped, mangled face of the guard as he's soaring through space towards the sun. I thought it was a great image, and also a great example of how Bizarro, as this points out, is very far gone, and actually, not so well known to me, previously in the story had become a very intelligent creature, one who had been capable of a great deal until suffering a tragedy. He lost all that intelligence and has returned to the more simple-minded creature who I've always associated with the name Bizarro. There's a lot of time jumping here. The issue, as I pointed out, said that it started out six months earlier, and then on page 22 it says that it's starting out six months later, which would essentially be today, or using this timeline, the same day when the Red Arrow seeks out Vessel to find out about Bizarro and Artemis. Bizarro and Artemis at this point have teamed up 
with what appears to be either a few humans willing to work with them or maybe some remaining heroes. And together, in Chapter 2, The Man Behind the Curtain, they are trying to find a way to get closer to those in charge. It requires teaming up with not only this new group, but also taking on General Samuel Lane, otherwise known as Father of Lois Lane and the Eyes of Many, one of the greatest super spies in the DC Universe. Lane, it turns out, is working with a giant brain-sized version of Lex Luthor, and together they've been rebuilding something called the Quantum Doorway, one that was actually originally built by Bizarro back when he was his, as they call it, mental prime. It's something that was believed lost forever and a way for Artemis and Bizarro to get home. Of course, that means dealing with not only Samuel Lane, but Lex Luthor. And that means that the only way they're going to be able to pull this off is if Bizarro and Artemis have a uh, trick up their sleeve, which they do. And that's a great plot twist that I don't want to take away from you, the reader. What I will say is, I love the development, the way that it's revealed, and also these weird and creepy versions of an alternate Earth that we get to experience. Something that's represented masterfully by this great art team. I really love the way we start out in this sort of dreamlike setting with Red Arrow and Vessel, somewhere with trees, feeling extremely idyllic, only to be transported to this harsh, barren, foreign world in which Bizarro and Artemis are enemies of the state, if not ordinary citizens. And it only proceeds to get weirder from that point on. I like the fun versions of humans with powers, and I also really enjoyed the descriptions of the details of their powers, and also the later details of characters like Sam Lane, who appears very twisted by his new powers, and the weird brain creature of Lex Luthor, who ends up playing a really fun role in this story. One that I thought fit his odd appearance in this issue. I really enjoyed the way uh, this issue sort of stepped away from Red Hood and the storyline that he's been following and brought in these characters of Bizarro and Artemis Grace, who I know through the descriptions and through the storytelling have been part of his world, and yet for me, felt like a completely new story, new introduction, new piece of the puzzle that filled in a lot for me and did it in such a great way that I, I just, I really embraced it and I really found myself sort of cheering on Artemis Grace and Bizarro. Great thing about this Red Hood and the Outlaws annual number three was the fact that it did so many things so well that I have no weaknesses to point to on the art or the story side. Maybe I'm just getting too friendly and comfortable, or maybe these books this week are just that good. For Red Hood and the Outlaws, annual number three, I went ahead and gave a solid five out of five. I think you're gonna agree with me, but I won't know until you let me know with all the ways we provide, and I'll describe for you at the end of this episode. Now for that fourth choice, I've gone ahead and chosen Justice League Dark, annual number one. Maybe it's just the fact that there were so many great stories in these annuals. Maybe I have a soft spot for annuals. I know this is at least the third annual that I've had on this episode of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. But when it's great, 
story and art like this, it's really hard not to make this choice, known as Acarius, Bloom, from writer James Tynan IV and Ram V. Ram V on the dialogue with Guillaume March providing the art, Arief Prianto on the colors, Rob Lay on the letters, and Riley Rosmo and Ivan Placencia providing a beautiful cover. This issue really reminded me of one of the old Len Wine Swamp Thing issues that I've had the chance to pick up and begin reading recently through the new DC Universe app. It's a great style of storytelling that captures this period of the shock and horror comics that seemed to be really prominent during the late 60s and 70s. In many ways, this is a story of Swamp Thing's replacement, or someone who is planned to be that. Swamp Thing is the avatar of the green, but he has fallen out of favor with the Parliament of Trees, and a tragedy befalls a man named Oleander. And Oleander, Oleander Sorrel, a man who believed that he died because of an accident, one that occurred while he was out in a somewhat remote location with his wife as they recovered from the death of their son and he poured himself into his scientific work. Something happened, something he doesn't understand, but because it happened, and it happened right after his wife had left him, he is the only one who is able to try and piece together what it was that happened and why things have become the way they are. He remembers working with his plants in the soil and then suddenly a fire. He's unsure how or why, but he remembers lying on the ground, dying, looking up at the stars, and then awaking to find that he is a, a figure, a creature, something almost humanoid, made up completely of flowers, because he is now the new avatar. At this moment, his moment of awakening, he is greeted by the Swamp Thing, who tries to explain that Oleander Sorrel is no longer Oleander Sorrel. And that, in fact, he's become something like the Swamp Thing. Something that is an avatar, something that can be something more than the limitations of his human body or his human path. Now, Swamp Thing has arrived because he knows the challenge facing Oleander Sorrel. And he believes the only way Sorrel can move on to his new identity is by finding the body, the skeleton of his past, and burying it. He, of course, decides that that is not what he wants, that first he must go seek out his wife, only to find that she is seeking comfort from a friend, one who makes him jealous, and in doing so, Oleander runs away and right into the arms of Woodrow. Now, Woodrow is a character that I have only had the chance to come across recently, although I really enjoyed his portrayal in the Swamp Thing series that was recently featured on DC Universe. Woodrow is, of course, able to manipulate through his own understanding of the powers that Sorrel is experiencing. And using those powers, Sorrel is able to bring back to life a humanoid figure who looks a lot like his son, who died. He actually creates more children than this and sends them off to his wife who begins caring for them, loving them, needing them. But during this time Swamp Thing has discovered that there is a secret to Sorrel, something that is tragic and something that infects everything he creates. It's not something Sorrel wants to hear and it's something that Woodrow tries to prevent. A battle breaks out between 
Woodrow and Swamp Thing. And at the end of it, when Swamp Thing is unable to continue any further, because as Woodrow points out, he's no longer the avatar of the green and no longer has the backing of the green. A final effort as he's turned to this dry, decaying vegetation is a piece of paper held in his hand that when Sorrel reads it, reveals that Sorrel actually laid down toxic chemicals in the soil and then laid his own body upon that until it disintegrated his flesh and killed them. And that by doing so, his transformation was part of a desire to no longer live, the one that infects everything he's created. And this comes out in a heartbreaking way with the children that he created and the effect it has on the woman he was only trying to please. The issue ends with a great twist where Sorrel is eaten by Woodrow, who, after consuming this figure, this newly born and recently created avatar, Woodrow is able to Woodrow is able to engage with and embrace this floronic man as he's been called. And in the process, he gets the chance to run into Cersei, who looks very different from when we last saw her, or at least when I last saw her, in Justice League Dark number 13. Cersei appears to have a plan and believes that Woodrow will make a great fit for that plan. This was a really gorgeous issue, and it's one that reminds me of a few that I've seen recently, whether it was uh, with Lucifer, or even more recently in issues of Justice League Dark. This ability to recognize the past that these characters come from, their history in the horror comic genre, and the ability to take that history and imbue these present stories with it, and take all of the best attributes and give them this modern feel. The sense of horror and shock and and sort of a darkness that works within the shadows is really evident from the first page and first panel. And it's uh, a very strong tone that carries throughout this book. It feels so sad, so lonely, so morbid, so hopeless in so many ways. And I think it's a great example of how the challenges that the Justice League Dark team has been feeling is something that can be lingered over or dwelt upon and you're at the same time even stepping away from it. It's a story that can be reflected on by showing another possibility for one of these characters like Swamp Thing in the uh, Floronic Van, but showing how that possibility, when twisted, is actually a poor comparison, and that for all the, the terrible things that Swamp Thing has had to experience in his life from Alec Holland and his transformation to the Swamp Thing and his time as Swamp Thing as an avatar of the green and now as a figure no longer associated with that great connection, he still is better off than the Floronic Man, who was damaged from the beginning and becomes a creature consumed by something as nefarious or someone as nefarious as Woodrow. I couldn't find any problems with this issue. Maybe there's just such a great batch of annuals and books this week. Or maybe it just has to do with the fact that every once in a while, when you open a series of books, you catch them right at their height when everything is working together just so well. My pleasure to give this book a solid 5 out of 5. I found no weaknesses in the story or the art. And if you did, I'd love to hear about it. Stay tuned to the end for all the ways you can. 
let's go ahead and move into my fifth and final choice. And for that fifth and final choice, it's my pleasure to talk about Batman Last Night on Earth, number two. Writer Scott Snyder has an amazing project on his hands, teaming up with Greg Capullo on pencils, Jonathan Glapion, I hope I said that right, on inks, FCO Placencia on color, and Tom Napolitano handling the letters. Greg Capullo and FCO Placencia provide the original cover. John Romita Jr. and Peter Staggerwald created a gorgeous variant cover. I hope I said all those names right, and if you know of ways that I could have said them better, I'd be happy if you let me know. When it comes to those covers, we've got the variant, this really cool one, featuring Batman holding that lantern with the Joker's head, and the original cover is also extremely cool. It's got Bane with this creepy spider, spidery fingered hand of Scarecrow lingering over his shoulder while Scarecrow kind of sits on his back, kind of like in a, I'll be honest, it reminds me of Yoda on the back of Luke Skywalker in Empire Strikes Back. It's just the first image that comes to mind. We're now in part five of the long story and in this section, issue number two of Last Night on Earth, the story continues to move between three main points, but it does its best actually in this issue to focus on two of the worlds without going too far into the three. That might sound a little confusing, so maybe I can explain just a little bit. In the first book, Batman Last Night on Earth, we see Batman in three different settings. One, classic Gotham, in which a young boy is found murdered. Two, in a clinical psychiatric hospital environment. And three, a apocalyptic dystopian future where he is walking a wasteland that he doesn't understand, carrying a lantern that has the talking head of the Joker inside. At this point in the story, this book, issue number two, opens in the setting of Gotham where Batman is facing off with Joe Chill and having a very awkward and confusing conversation about just what happened to the boy who was found murdered, what Joe Chill had to do with it. And it feels like this scene builds on the tension of the history between Batman and Joe Chill, depending on which part of Batman's legacy and backstory uh, you choose to to sort of follow or connect with when it comes to Bruce Wayne and the murder of his parents. It was at one point connected to the Joker, later to Joe Chill. In other stories, it's been something that was committed by a stranger, by an unknown assailant, one that Batman was never able to uncover or capture. After that quick glimpse at Gotham and a world that feels like it's almost just in Batman's head, but that's something that could be said about each one of these worlds, the story quickly moves into the dystopian future. Batman, Joker's head in the lantern, a horse and a fire, and a speed force tornado that appears to be made up of Wally, Barry, Jay Garrick, and maybe other speedsters. It's completely out of control, and it's tearing all across the plains where Batman and the Joker are. Continuing on with the bat glider, Batman and Joker soar over different parts of the world that 
Batman and the rest of us once knew, including a refuge that was supposed to be a haven for all the best and brightest, something that was twisted and warped, and is now a compound constantly waging war against these twisted creatures that are always attacking it. It's guarded by unknown soldiers and haunted tanks, and it's a really interesting development, one that shows just how far gone this world has actually gone, <laughs> just how far it's allowed itself to go. My favorite moment is when this giant swamp thing monster rises up over everything, and all of the figures on the ground begin to run and scatter. There's a great moment that sort of cuts into this scene in which Alfred Pennyworth is seen talking to that creepy scarecrow from the cover and Bane, and we're introduced to Omega. Omega is very bat-like in appearance and yet very stoic and almost dark sidian in action creation and design. It feels like a twisted version of a Batman, and it feels like the only sort of character who could be responsible for all of this chaos that Batman is wandering through. He and Joker continue on their journey. They find Superman's capsule from when he was a little boy that transported him to Earth, and they are rescued by one of Superman's robots who carries them to the Fortress of Solitude, where they meet a very emaciated and eccentric looking Lex Luthor who tries to explain just what it was that happened to the world although his explanation is a bit confusing twisted distorted and comes down to a debate between Lex and Superman over what the world should choose Superman wins but instead of a finale that had been predicted which was the loser would be killed Superman rushes over to try and save Lex from an imminent death and in the process Superman is killed. Lex feels terrible about it and from everything in this scene it appears he's been trying to make up for it. That problem is smaller in nature when Scarecrow and Bane show up to ruin the party but then we get a great appearance by Mohawked Wonder Woman who also has this sort of scarring on the left side of her face and after she is able to rescue Batman and Joker's head, they journey together across more of this strange world, encountering things like a giant cloak from the Spectre that now lays across the ground for miles, and is also a way into a hidden world where Wonder Woman and all of the remaining survivors have been hiding. It takes them through the River Styx, and they are transported to Gotham, as it is now place that Batman quickly says is not Gotham, but one that is the Gotham that now exists in this world. Batman and Wonder Woman don't get too far into the city limits before they're greeted by the Court of Owls, and it's revealed that leading them is Dick Grayson. Really loved the way this issue continued with so many of the great elements that started out in Batman Last Night on Earth, issue number one. There's a tone that has to be set for each one of the worlds that existed in the first issue, and it's wonderfully carried over into the second issue. Although, in this one, we mostly focus on the past of Batman in a Gotham that's very familiar and yet twisted, and a dystopian future that feels completely foreign, and one that could only come from the craziest of minds. I love the fact 
that this is something that Scott Snyder has put a lot of thought, creativity, and imagination into. And he's got this great team of artists who are able to bring all of these things to life. The environments are wonderfully toned, and the atmosphere that is created for each one feels distinct, individual, and separate from the others, which helps to make these really great transitions feel so jarring and disconnected. I love the way that, in so many ways, this feels like an Elseworlds story one in which all the worst possibilities are brought to light. And because they are, we're able to experience this really great possibility. It's a dark, scary, and haunting possibility, but it's also one that makes me feel like there are so many pieces yet to be revealed in this story. And I love the way characters like Flash, Spectre, Wonder Woman, and even some of those interesting little tidbits like Superman's robots, the unknown soldiers, the haunted tanks, Swamp Thing, are used to such wonderful possibility within this story. Uh, great shading, great light. I love the way the lines make certain parts feel so crisp, clear, and detailed, so haunting, so vivid, and how in just a panel or a page, suddenly the surreal, the fantastical comes to life. I think there's a really great job done whenever elements of Gotham are shown. The darkness, the way shadows seem to be everywhere, this, this constant fog and mist, and the way it seems to create this gloomy world that feels very reminiscent of, uh, of a 16 or 17th century England. One that feels like all the worst possibilities are just waiting to come out and all you have to do is keep looking long enough before they reveal themselves. This was a wonderful issue, one that continues the absurdity and outlandish storytelling and creativity that made the first issue so enjoyable, and one of the reasons why it's my pleasure to give Batman Last Night on Earth a solid five out of five. I love the art, I love the writing, I found no weaknesses on either side, and I know that if you felt the same way, that's a score I'd love to hear about. But if you felt different, that's a score I'd like to hear just as much. When it comes to that, there's a few ways to tell you all about it. DC Comics News is now on all major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear more, not only of the Spinner Rack, but also from that great team that hosts every week, the DCN, DC Comics News Podcast, well, please head over, subscribe, and then rate and review. I think we're five stars all the way, but I'd love to hear your opinion, because if it's not five stars, I want to know how we can make it better. On social media, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. All you have to do is use the tag at DC Comics News. That's at D-C-C-O-M-I-C-S-N-E-W-S. And as we like to end every episode with a few careful reminders. One, thank you for joining me for this episode of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, episode number 20. Looking forward to 20 more and 20 more after that, but I'm only able to do it because you're here with me each and every week. Looking forward to joining you next week for episode number 21. And for that last little reminder, it's an easy one. Always read more comics. This has been The Spinner Rack episode number 20. See you next time.